0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together again this morning. We thank you that you are a speaking God and that you accomplish things through speech. We thank you for bringing the universe into existence through your speech and we thank you for bringing the church and for us into existence through your speech. We were regenerated and reborn by your word and spirit. We have been justified by your word. We are sanctified by your word as well. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to understand We pray that you would conform us more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus as you transform us by the renewing of our mind. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, please be seated and turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, I'd like us to consider Jacob, not just this story, but more Jacob's life one of the most interesting characters in scripture, one of the most interesting characters in the Old Testament, actually one of the characters that we know more about than most characters. We know all about him from the womb all the way to the tomb uh, with Jacob. And so I'd like to consider not so much a snapshot of his life, but a movie of his life. If we were just to take a snapshot of any of our lives, depending on which day we took, it may be a pretty bleak picture or a pretty lovely picture. But if we were to take a movie of our life, we see more of the arc, of what's going on in terms of how the Lord is faithful to us and how he's molding and shaping us and how we change as he conforms us more and more to the image of his son and we see quite a lot of grace and quite a lot of growth in the story of Jacob in the story that we're going to be reading he is nearing the end of his days and he has quite an interesting life one of the longest stories as I said in Scripture it's a life filled with highs and lows it's a life full of peaks and valleys It's a life full of sin and salvation, a life full of death and sorrow and suffering and a life full of joy. It's interesting, some of the families that the Lord tells us about in scripture are massively dysfunctional, aren't they? This family is dysfunctional on steroids. From beginning to end. I mean, even if you think about the parents and how they felt about their two children, It says, Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. That's somewhat of a disaster for a family. If one parent loves one kid and the other parent loves the other kid and how that plays out between them. And we see that, the scripture doesn't pull any punches in terms of laying it out for us, that story and why it's even here. And so I'd kind of like to follow the drama as it unfolds in this text, but also looking back on Jacob's life throughout as we see the Lord's faithfulness to him And as we just sang, that salvation to his people, God will give, is the theme of scripture. And here, God is giving salvation to Jacob. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't merit it. He doesn't earn it. He is one of the biggest rascals in scripture. But let's hear now three things that we want to focus on. Jacob's plight, Jacob's plea, and Jacob's profession. Jacob's plight, Jacob's plea, and Jacob's profession. But let's hear now the word of God, Genesis 32. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So they called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to me, your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and, mothers, and the mothers with children. But you said, I will surely do good to you and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, The same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to our hearing. Well, the first thing we want to consider in this story is Jacob's plight. Jacob has essentially been at war with Esau, his twin, his whole life. As a matter of fact, even with the description of that in the womb is that he was grasping on to Esau's heel. As a matter of fact, Jacob's name means usurper. It means grasper. It kind of carries the idea of cheating or scheming. Jacob uh, swindled Esau out of his birthright, is if you remember that, that, uh, that scene. They lived their lives in anger and fear and hatred and deception and plotting against one another. And in Genesis 27, it says, Esau hated Jacob and he vowed to kill him. This was years and years of their life together. That was spent in animosity and enmity and anger and strife and dysfunction and hatred. And our text is also not the first time that Jacob has been visited by an angel. Turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 28. In Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 10, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There is no other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. What an interesting story. That earlier in his life, amid all of this animosity and all of this hatred, that the Lord appeared to him and renewed the promise that he had made to Abraham and to Isaac and assured him that his offspring would be as many as the sands of the sea, as a multitude. And he continues on, and now he's in a conflict in his life. It's now 20 years later. Jacob has served Laban. You remember what happened there? He went and wanted to marry his daughter, and he worked seven years and ended up marrying Leah. He really wanted to marry Rachel. He worked another seven years and he married Rachel and then he worked another seven years for Laban. And he had been lied to and he had been cheated by his father-in-law over and over. The same kind of attitude that he had had towards his father and and cheating to him, he is now getting from his father-in-law. And finally he and Laban decided to part in a truce. And now Jacob, later in life, is seeking to reconcile with Esau. We can see that God has been working on his heart in one way or another. He wants to to go and to make peace with his brother. This principle is actually elaborated with uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, if someone has something against you, go and be reconciled to them. It's not first and foremost if you have something against someone, but if you know somebody has something against you, go and be reconciled to them. And here Jacob is, later in his life, after all the things he's experienced and seen and heard and all of his lying, all of his scheming, also all of his faith, now is an opportunity near the end of his life to go and be reconciled to his brother. And so Jacob sends messengers to Esau in the land of Seir. And he says, say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. That's a different posture, isn't it? Towards his brother that he hated and they were sworn enemies. He's now calling him Lord. Not meaning that he believes he's a God in any way, but he's above him in some sense. He's the elder brother. He's the rightful heir. He deserves respect. He deserves honor. We're told to love our brothers. We're actually even told to, that we are our brother's keeper, aren't we? We are to care for them. And so he says, say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. He's recognizing that he is to serve and to love his brother, not to usurp him, not to cheat him, not to use him, not to swindle him, but to love him. There's growth, there's grace, there's maturity in the life of Jacob that we see here. And he's sending him all these gifts. He wants to send him oxen and donkeys and flocks and flocks, and servants. It says, in order that I might find favor in your sight. And that word favor really carries the idea of grace, that I might find grace. Jacob is now at a point in his life where he's seeking to right wrongs. He's stolen his brother's birthright, and now he wants to give him goods that he has made throughout his life. He's usurped his privileges of the firstborn, and now he wants to serve him. He wants to be his brother's keeper. He knows that he is wrong. He's not seeking justice. He's asking for grace. He's asking for mercy. He's asking for favor. He's trying to appease him in some way. He's trying to make it right. And he hears this ominous report that says, your brother Esau is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Oh, man. He's rolling out with his boys he's rolling out with his posse right 400 people 400 men you got to wonder what jacob's thinking he's thinking is he coming because we're going to have a great celebration of reconciliation or is he coming because this is going to be a war this is going to be ugly 400 people 400 men is a lot the text says that jacob was afraid he feared and so what does jacob do At this point in his life, this is the first recorded prayer of Jacob. He prays. Our second point, Jacob's plea. The text says that he was greatly afraid and that he was greatly distressed. As you can imagine. He's got his wives, he's got 11 children with him, and now he hears that his angry brother who vowed to kill him is coming with 400 men. And so Jacob prays. I remember, I don't remember what the situation was, but I remember being in a meeting with Dr. Godfrey when he was the president of the seminary one time, and most of us were all stressed and worried about something. And he said, and only he can with a sly smile, he says, well, if all else fails, we can pray and trust the Lord. (laughs) What a great thing to remind us of. What a great thing to remember. Amidst of all the circumstances that look unrelentingly bleak, we can pray and we can trust the Lord, and this is what Jacob does. His prayer is recorded for us in verses nine through 12, and this is the longest recorded prayer in Genesis. It's the only one that really has any significant content to it, and it's bookended by noting God's promises to him. He starts off by saying, oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. We always talk about the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, This is Jacob, this is that Jacob in his life. The one who made promises to my grandfather Abraham and to my father Isaac, he's calling out to him. And then he says, oh Lord, Yahweh is the name he uses. The personal, the covenantal name, the family name that was given, a relational name. This is the first, the only time that Jacob uses God's revealed name in scripture. He said, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good to you. He's rehearsing and rehearing the promises of God, which is what we do every week as we gather together again, isn't it? To remind ourselves, to rehear and to refresh ourselves on what God has promised and who he is and what he has done for us and who he is with us as we pilgrim in this present evil age. He says, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good to you. That's what you said to me. It's sometimes easy for us to think of God as great, isn't it? When we look around at creation, we think that's amazing. It's great that God did that. It's sometimes harder, I think, to say God is good. Because in the circumstances of our life, how do we see that? How can he see that in the relationships that he's had with his parents and his brothers and in the things going on in the world? But he confesses and recognizes that God not only is great, but that he's good. And the Lord had promised him, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good to you. And then to hear the confession, he said, I am not worthy. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to me, your servant. Here he's recognizing, he's not deserving of any of this he's not negotiating with them he's not demanding his rights he's saying i'm not worthy of any of this your steadfast love your mercy your faithfulness to me all of these years i am not worthy of and he says that he crossed into this land only with a staff and now he has two camps look at the lord's blessing to him throughout his life the lord's faithfulness to him He'd come over as a young man, only with the staff, single. And now he's married twice, has 11 kids, one's on the way, two camps. The Lord's blessings to him have been amazing. It's rich. It's a rich prayer. He recognizes himself as unworthy. He's no longer grasping for what is not his but he's thanking the Lord for his abundance and his goodness to him. He's moving from a narcissistic, selfish jerk to a servant who loves the Lord and loves others, loves his brother, loves his enemy. All that he has, he recognizes, comes from the Lord. And he recognizes that the Lord has been faithful in his love to him. And so he makes a plea. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and, in essence, kill my family as well. This is honest, isn't it? This is anxiety. He's scared. First Peter tells us to cast your fears and anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. It doesn't say don't be afraid. I mean, Scripture does say, don't be afraid. But it recognizes there are things that cause us fear. There are things that cause us anxiety. If I was able to sit and have coffee with all of you, you could tell me those things in your life. And God doesn't just come and say, hey, don't be anxious. But he said, don't be anxious and cast your fears and anxieties on me because I care for you. We have a place. We have something to do with it. When all else fails, we can trust the Lord and we can pray. We can bring these things to him knowing that he is good, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he cares, knowing that he wants to hear from us. And not that he's not only concerned about himself anymore, he's concerned about his family, he's concerned about others. This is a person who's being changed by the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson says, God does not enable us to deal with our fear by removing all possibility of fear but giving us ample reasons to believe in the midst of fear. And so you heard in his prayer that Jacob is rehearsing God's faithfulness. He came in with a staff, and now he has two camps. God has been faithful. God has been present. Christianity is not a blind leap into the abyss. We have ample evidence to believe what we believe, even more so than our brother Jacob on this side of the cross. He was crucified, and he is risen, beloved. That's ample evidence to believe. He was crucified for us. He was raised for us. He's ruling and reigning at the right hand for us. And so in our anxiety and in our fear, we can bring these things to the Lord, knowing that he loves us. And he's manifested that love by sending his own son to pay the penalty of our sin and to make us heirs, to make us sons and daughters of the king That we can call upon him not just as the great creator of the universe, which he is, but our Father who loves us and is present for us. And so Jacob's just remembering and rehearing and recalling the promises, which is what we want to do every week here and hopefully as you meditate upon the word throughout the week. And so Jacob has a plan. He doesn't just pray. He also has a plan. He prays first and then he puts a plan in place. This is reconciliation and restitution. This is killing him with kindness. (laughs) 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys, wave after wave of gifts. If you're thinking about something to get the Tedricks for Christmas, not even this much would be necessary. Imagine the embarrassment of all these things that he's sending to them to try to appease him. And with each wave of stuff, what is that going to do to Esau's heart? Is it going to soften him or not? We know the rest of the story, but Jacob didn't. This is all unfolding in real time for him. He says, when you see Esau, say, these belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, your servant Jacob is behind. He's sending gift after gift, wave after wave of thing to him. We do know a little bit about Jacob's internal monologue. The scripture tells us that he sent it that he might appease him. The word there could really be translated that he might atone. It's interesting, some of the things that he sent are sacrificial animals. Is he trying to appease and atone the one that he's wronged here? Is he trying to make peace through a sacrifice, through an offering, through these gifts? And then the text says later that same night, right? If it had a soundtrack, it would have that almost bump bump boom, boom, right? Jacob arose and took two of his wives, Leah and Rachel, his servants, not two of his wives, his two wives, his servants, his eleven children, across the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And then this is the climax of the text, and Jacob was left alone. His whole life, he's been with people, even in the womb. He had a womb mate. His whole life. And now he recognizes God's faithfulness. He called out on the name of the Lord. He sends away his family to keep them safe. And he's all alone in the desert. It's meant to draw us in. We know the end of the story. But imagine if you're Jacob. And you're laying there that night with four, your brother and 400 men coming, family sent away, and you're there alone. What a night. Let's look at finally Jacob's profession. The text said, a man wrestled with him until nearly dawn." you got to wonder, like, what does this man hope to gain? (laughs) Jacob has nothing. He sent everything away. He's in the middle of the desert laying there by himself. And a man, the text says, comes and wrestled with him. He has nothing. If you don't get anything else, get this out of the sermon. (laughs) What the man wanted was Jacob. Not his stuff. Salvation to his people God will give. And we here we find the Lord giving salvation or reassuring salvation to his servant, Jacob. What did the man hope to gain? Him. One of his elect. One of his children from before the foundation of the world. An absolute rascal that needs salvation. A sinner that needs a savior. And the Lord comes to him. It says when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. We can kind of think of this as a tussle between equals, but we really should think of it of like an older brother playing with a toddler. <laughs> At any point, the man could have put his hip out of socket. He's engaging him. Hey, let's see what he's got. Let's get involved. Let's. Tussle a little bit in this. In a wrestling match, there are three periods of three minutes each, so nine minutes total. This wrestling match goes on all night. That's exhausting. That's tiring. That's wearying. And then when the man had enough, just with a touch, he puts his hip out of joint. In wrestling, right, your hip is the fulcrum of all of your power, of all of your thrust, of all of your might. And When the man had enough, that was it, done. And the man said, let me go for the day is broken. Like a big brother that's kind of done, like, hey, enough. We've had our fun. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. (laughs) And the man said, what is your name? What's really interesting about this is that it couldn't be more significant because at another point in Jacob's life, he was asked his name. When he went to swindle, Esau out of his birthright. If you remember that story, he made himself, like he had put on animal furs and his mom made porridge and he made himself smell and look bloody. And he goes in to his father, and his father is old, he can't see well. He's kind of decrepit, doesn't hear well at this point anymore. And he says, "Who is it?" And he said, "It's Esau." He lied. He lied to get a birthright. He lied to get a blessing. He lied to get what he wanted. And he implicates his mother in the situation. He implicates the Lord in the situation. His father says, well, you smell like Esau, but you sound like Jacob. He said, come near and let me touch you. And then he had put on all these things to make him deceive his father. He said, where did you get this game so fast? He said, the Lord provides, which is a lie as well. I mean, the Lord does provide, but that's not what had happened in this situation. And he and his mom decided to deceive his dad. And isn't it interesting that Esau didn't, if he would have trusted his ears, he would have said, "Whoa, that sounds like Jacob. But he started to trust what he could see. He started to trust what he could touch. Beloved, how does faith come? By hearing. That's interesting. That's another sermon. But he was asked in that situation, who are you? And he said, I'm Esau. Now flash forward 20, 30 years in his life. Another blessing is wanted. And the question is asked, what is your name? And this time he says one word, Jacob. Schemer, usurper, cheater. He knows what he's about. This time he confesses. He knows who he is. He's Jacob. He's the liar. He's the cheater. He's the stealer. He's the schemer. He's the usurper. He's out alone in the wilderness and he's been calling on the Lord to intervene. The last time he tried to lie to get the blessing, he got it via dishonesty, via corruption, via scheming versus striving. But this time, the one asking is not an old, blind, gullible, weak man, but God himself. Why in the world is this in scripture? (laughs) It's to show and to highlight God's grace and God's mercy that our salvation is not deserved, that it's not earned, that it's not merited. It's in there to highlight God's amazing grace, his unfathomable love, his radical forgiveness, and his unspeakable faithfulness, even when his servants are unfaithful. The initiative has been God's all along. God was the one who chose Jacob and not Esau. When he was in the wilderness before and saw the angels ascending and descending it wasn't Jacob who climbed a ladder to God it was the Lord who sent angels down to him and here it is the Lord coming to him and the angel of the Lord here I submit to you is a pre-incarnate Christ this is the second person of the Holy Trinity the Savior himself wrestling with him saying what is your name and Jacob says Jacob He's right. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross or the Savior, I claim. And so the man says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God. Why do I say it's Christ? You've striven with God and with men and prevailed. And so he changes his name. To be able to name something is to have power or control or authority over it, isn't it? That's why God gave Adam and Eve naming rights in the garden. Whatever you call it, that's what it is. And here the Lord is saying, No longer shall you be called Jacob, but you should be called Israel. Which means God strives, God preserves, God prevails. The Lord gave him a name. Christ gave him a name. And then Jacob says, please tell me your name. And the man says, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And we know that Jacob knew who it was because of what Jacob said. In verse 30, note what Jacob says. He says, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. How is the only way that one can see the face of God and live? How can an unholy person see the face of God and live is only through the person and work of Jesus Christ? And here it was. That's who is wrestling with him. Jacob knows who it was. Sometimes people ask well, who won this wrestling match? It was a defeat and a victory and won, right? For the man, his victory was Jacob. He's got him. He's now now Israel. He continues to confirm him in the faith and nourish him. Despite all of Jacob's failings, God remains faithful to his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and he's bringing Jacob along in growth and in grace. Jacob won by losing, didn't he? Mr. All-Sufficient, Mr. Self-Righteous, Mr. Schemer, Mr. Deceiver, Mr. Liar is now Mr. Blessed, Mr. Loved, Mr. Forgiven, Mr. Righteous. Names given to him, gifts given to him, grace given to him, mercy given to him. He was brought low in order to see his sin, to see his need and to see his savior that he could be lifted high. This is a great image, isn't it, of every Christian that's been humbled by sin and saved by grace. Jacob goes forward confident in faith. He's always gonna carry with him a limp, a reminder. Paul says, when I am weak, I am strong. That weakness in Jacob's flesh may remind him that it's not by my might, by my power, or by my strength, but by the Lord's that I have any and all of this. And I have my salvation itself. And so Jacob moves forward. As we wrap up, I want to flash forward to another dark night. There's another son of Abraham, another son of Isaac, another son of Jacob wrestling, if you will, with God. And he says in the garden, if there's any way that this cup could be passed from me, please take it from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Here's one unlike Jacob. In our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is no deceit. There is no guile. There is no grasping. There is no cunning. There's just love and mercy and grace and holiness and faithfulness and lawfulness always seeking to do that which pleases the Lord. And so he asks, if there's any way that you could take this cup from me, then take it, but not my will, but thine be done. And that is he's hanging on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? In essence, he's saying, I will not let you go until you bless them not until you bless me, but until you bless those for whom I'm on this cross. You see, he was forsaken. He was abandoned. He was crushed because of our sin, because we're like Jacob. We're liars. We're schemers. We're cheaters. We're envious. We're irritable. We're rude. We insist on our own way. We're impatient. We're boastful. We're lustful. Fill in the blank. And Jesus Christ went to the cross for us. He says, I will not let go until you bless them. And so, as he was hanging on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he said, It is finished. He said, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He accomplished our salvation, he became a curse. More than just a dislocated hip, death. That we could have life and we could have it abundantly. And when he lifts his hands to bless his disciples, after the resurrection, they saw the marks. The cost of that love, the cost of that mercy was his crucifixion, his cursed death, his abandonment, his forsakenness, the wrath of God that we might be comforted, that we might have assurance, that we might know the love of God. For God so loved that he sent his son Jesus, that whosoever believes in him should have life. And Jesus willingly came and laid down his life for his sheep. And beloved, in conclusion, you also have a new name. As a Christian, Jesus said... the Great Commission he said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I am with you always to the end of the age beloved you've been given a new name you're a Christian you belong to the Father in the Son and through the Holy Spirit now and forever. You've been baptized into that name. That's who you are. It's not something you strive for. It's something that you are. It's a gift given. It's a name. It's a reality. You belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who's fully satisfied for all of your sins. You are Christian. And that's a great comfort to us. When asked, what is your name? Christian. I'm not my own. I was purchased with a price. I'm loved by my Father, I'm loved by the Son, and I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit whose love been poured into my heart that I might know and that I might believe. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the gritty reality of Scripture. We thank you for not whitewashing the stories of the saints. We are more like Jacob than we are like Jesus. And we thank you for your grace we thank you for your mercy we thank you that we are not our own but that we belong to jesus that we belong to you we thank you that you have put your name on us that you have washed us in the blood of christ and you have robed us in his righteousness and that we are indwelt by your holy spirit now and forever and father as those who have been so graciously and mercifully treated we ask that we would do that towards others If there's anyone for whom we need to seek reconciliation, Father, we ask that we be quick to do it. We ask that we do it for your glory and for their good. We ask that you would help us to know when to speak and when to remain silent. We ask that you would grow us in wisdom. We ask that you would conform us more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.